Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. This morning we're going to be continuing a sermon series on the role of women in ministry. So this is part two of a three-part series. If you're here last week, you heard a little bit of my story. I grew up in a, a wonderful church, Southern Baptist Church, but my church did practice what we would call a strict form of complementarianism. And the way that was uh, kind of lived out in my church is we had only male staff members. We did not ordain women deacons. We did not have women teaching co-ed Bible study classes. We did not have women leading committees or ministry teams. And I might be wrong, but I don't remember ever seeing a woman actually up on the stage, the platform, reading a scripture or even offering a prayer. Now that would be what is called a very strict form of complementarianism. So what is complementarianism? It's just an interpretive view that the Bible says that although men and women are created equal, God has ordained different roles for men and women. And the role of leadership in the home and in the church has been given to men. That's what complementarians mean. Now, if you were to ask somebody on my church staff where we get that in the Bible, one of the places they would have, would have taken you, and I want to take you here today, it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This would be one of the passages that they would use to support that particular interpretive view and practice. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11 through 15. Let me just quickly read this passage. It says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So if you take that verse at face value, like the leaders of my home church did, then you would understand from this verse, or you could at least draw conclusions that women were to be in a listening posture or role, and men were the spiritual authorities and were to be in the teaching role. And then we also learn that this, one of the rationales for this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And in fact, that's one reason that uh, my home church and others believe this was a universal principle that was intended for all people of all times uh, in all circumstances for the church. This is a, a universal principle to be continued in their world, but also in our worlds. Because it goes back to the Garden of Eden. And basically what this says is that uh, 
although Eve was created second, she was the first to be deceived by Satan and the first to sin. And then it says, uh, and so there was some kind of ongoing consequence for that that resulted in women needing to be in this submissive role. And then the last part of it says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And what that simply was interpreted to mean is that the role of women, the God-ordained role of women was to be in the home, raising children, nurturing them in a holy household. So that's kind of what I grew up being taught. I know some of you were taught the same thing because some of you told me that last week after the sermon. Well, I have a question to ask of that interpretation. How do we reconcile this teaching written by the Apostle Paul and then the teaching that we looked at last week also written by the Apostle Paul? It came from Romans chapter 16. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that we looked at that passage where Paul commends 10 different women and gives them some of the highest praise of anyone in Scripture and appreciates them and encourages them for their ministry leadership in the church. And we met women like Junia, who was called an apostle. In fact, she was called outstanding among the apostles. An apostle was the highest authority of anyone in the early church. And Junia, a woman, was given that designation by Paul, who wrote these same words. And then we also met a woman named Priscilla, whose husband was Aquila. And you'll remember we talked about how they were such a great team. They were dear friends of the apostle Paul. In fact, they were business partners with Paul. They were tent makers together or leather workers. And Priscilla and Aquila lived in Corinth when they first met Paul. They led a house church there. And then they moved with Paul when he moved his ministry focus to Ephesus. They moved to Ephesus and led a house church there. And then later, they're back in Rome, which we think was their hometown, their home city, and they were leading a house church there. House church leaders, in their world, house church leaders did all kinds of things. They didn't just open their home. They served a meal. They provided the food. They led the teaching They led the prayer service. They probably even led communion, taking the Lord's Supper. They were ministry leaders. And what's unique about that, if you remember, we talked about it. There's five different occasions where we read about this couple being mentioned, Priscilla and Aquila, both by Luke and by Paul in their writings. And in four of the five settings, Priscilla is mentioned first. Very unusual For a Greco-Roman writer of their day, they almost always in that patriarchal culture would would list the husband first. Why did they list Priscilla first in front of her husband in those listing of their names? The reason for that is that Priscilla, we believe, was the primary ministry leader in the relationship. And Aquila would have been more in the support role. And that's significant as we think about what they were doing as house church leaders. We also have the story in Acts chapter 18, you'll remember, when this very talented, gifted preacher, teacher, evangelist, apologist named Apollos 
shows up in Ephesus and he preaches a sermon. Priscilla and Aquila hear his sermon and they realize there's some gaps in his theology, some missing knowledge that he needs to be informed about in terms of the gospel. And so what do they do? They take Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos to their home and they fill in those gaps. They fill in that missing knowledge. In other words, they instruct him on the truth, the gospel, and they teach him. Who would have been doing the teaching? It would have been Priscilla, teaching not only a man, but this preacher, teacher, evangelist, leader in the church. And then we met also in Romans 16, you'll remember Phoebe. Phoebe is described by Paul as a deaconess had an official title role in the early church, a leadership role of a deacon. And then it was Phoebe that Paul entrusted with taking the letter of Romans all the way to Rome and hand-delivering it to the leaders of the church in Rome. He could have chosen all kinds of men in Corinth or Sincrea, that region, men that he mentioned some in the letter and then others in his writings to the Corinthians, all kinds of godly men, but he didn't choose any of them. He chose Phoebe, a woman, to take that letter. And when she got there, what would she do? She would have read the letter, not just in one setting, because the church of Rome would have been in all these different house churches. And she would have traveled, and she would have very likely read the letter herself. But even if she didn't read the letter, she would have stayed and she would have engaged in dialogue with the, the church, the believers in those churches, answering their questions, providing explanations. I don't know how many of you have read the book of Romans, but when you read the book of Romans, you're going to have questions, lots of questions. And who was answering those? It was Phoebe. Paul's proxy teacher there, the one he chose to represent him. And then she stayed there and kind of set up his ministry, got ready for him to come. He had to be in Jerusalem. He wanted to come to Rome. He was coming to Rome to set up a ministry base there in the, the empire city, the capital city of the Roman Empire, as a base to go to the ends of the earth. Who was setting all that up as an administrative leader? It was Phoebe that he entrusted that job to. So all that's to say is that we have ministry leaders in all kinds of roles, including teaching roles in the early church that Paul tells us about. And we could go on and on. There's others in the New Testament. Lydia, Syntyche, Judea, Aphia, Nympha, all house church leaders. How do we reconcile those words of Paul with these words of Paul, where he puts real strict restrictions and limitations on women? Well, let me just pose a question. What if Paul did not intend for 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 to be a universal principle? to be applied by all Christians in all seasons of life, all ages, all eras, all times, all Christians everywhere? What if he did not intend for that to be a universal principle, but a situational specific principle intended for the people in this church at their time, the church of Ephesus in the mid-60s of the first century? What if he just intended it for them? 
And then why would he put such a restriction in place? Well, what if there was a problem going on in the church of Ephesus in the first century, the mid-60s of the first century, that needed to be dealt with? A very serious, a big, a bad problem. And what if that problem involved women? What if women were right at the heart or the root of the problem? What if they were in the middle of something not good? Would that explain why Paul then gives some very strict restrictions upon those particular women at that particular time in that particular church? Well, if that were true, if my theory is correct, we could look at the letter of 1 Timothy and we could probably find some clues as to what the problem was and how women were contributing to the problem. So why don't we just take a few minutes and do that very thing. Let's take a real quick survey. We're going to go fast. And I just want to look at different sections of 1 Timothy to see what we can discover. So if you look in your Bibles, let's start with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes this to young Timothy, his assistant, missionary assistant that he's left in Ephesus. Look what he says. He says, I urged you when I went into Macedonia to stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Whoa, there it is, right there, right off the bat. A very serious problem, a big problem, a bad problem. There was false teachers, people teaching false things, false theology, serious false doctrine. And so that's why Timothy was there in the first place, staying there to try to help clean up the mess. Look at it says in verse 4, we get some more details about this false teaching. Devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. There's some strange stuff going on in this church. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's kingdom, which is by faith. The goal of this command, he's telling Timothy, is love, which comes from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. Timothy, it's not going to be easy, but this is important. And you're motivated by love. You've got to love these people with tough love and straighten this out. Then he says in verse 6, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. That's what's going on in the church. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they are so confidently affirming. False teaching. People wanting to be teachers, but they don't know what they're talking about. And there's all this meaningless talk taking a place that is very destructive to the church. We can see how destructive it is if you look at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. In verse 19, he says that people's face are being shipwrecked by this teaching. That's a very clear visual of a spiritual problem. People's lives were being shipwrecked. Their face were being destroyed. And then look what he says in verse 20. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught and not to blaspheme. This was a blasphemous teaching or a heretical teaching that was taking place. These two guys that are mentioned were probably people that Paul, when he went there first with Timothy, had to dismiss maybe even removed completely from the church. 
because of this teaching that he is giving, he says at the heart of this, this was Satan behind all of this. Serious, serious problem was happening in this church. Look over at chapter 4, verse 1 and following, pick up some more clues. It says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That was happening in the 60s of the first century in Ephesus. A demonic teaching and deception was happening. Such teachings, he says in verse 2, come from hypocritical liars. That's strong words, talking about the false teachers. He goes on in verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. So they have all these legalistic rules that they have pulled into this false teaching. You can't get married, you shouldn't get married, and you shouldn't eat this or that. And so what we're seeing is something that is not found in the rest of Scripture. It is a false teaching coming from another source. Flip over real quick to chapter 6, and let's just look at some more descriptions. Verse 4, it says, they are conceited, talking about the false teachers. They understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions. There's constant friction between people of a corrupt mind. All kinds of division, all kinds of destructive things, malicious talk, and they were envy was a motive. But we also see one more motive here at the end of verse 5 of chapter 6. It says, they have been robbed of the truth, and they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Not only was this a spiritual scam taking place in the church of Ephesus, it was a financial scam. And then we find just a few verses later that famous scripture that says, for the love of money, is verse 10 of chapter 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, talking about the false teachers and their love for money, and that was clearly a motive behind what they were doing and propagating. If we look at the very last two verses of the book of 1 Timothy, or the letter, Chapter 6, verse 20, we see it says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas. It's what was happening in the church. And then listen to this. It says, of what is falsely called knowledge. I think that gives us a clue as to what this teaching, false teaching, was really about. In the first century, we have, I think here, the early beginnings of what later is called Gnosticism. And this was a strange false teaching. It mixed in scripture with secular philosophy, with all kinds of pagan ideology and traditions, and a bunch of mumbo jumbo. It was what it was. And it was, uh, it said there is this secret knowledge. Look what it says. Profess this so-called knowledge. And if you get this secret knowledge, it'll help you. And they had this dualism that the material world was evil and bad, so you should stay away from it. So don't eat these certain foods and don't, don't get married, things like that that would be material in nature. But then on the other side, it said that evil was bad. It didn't really matter. Only thing that was good was the spirit. So you could really kind of, on the other side, you could do whatever you wanted. 
morally or immorally, like sexual immorality. Didn't matter because that was material. Only thing that mattered was spiritual. So you had all this strange teaching. The church had to deal and fight and battle Gnosticism for the next 200 years. If you read some of the church fathers, you see some of that. I think this was a beginning form of Gnosticism that was filtering in to the church of Ephesus and was shipwrecking people's faith. It was dangerous. It was real bad. So that's the problem. What about women? Were women part of this problem? Well, let's just flip over real quick to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's writing a few years later, back to Timothy, the same young man. And of course, they're dealing with some newer circumstances, but he's talking to him about dealing with false teachers. There was still a problem of false teachers at this time. But look at verse 6, what he says. He says about the false teachers, he says, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So one of the tactics of the false teachers would be to get into somebody's home and manipulate young women or the women, and then the women would take that false teaching and propagate it throughout the church. They would spread the false teaching. Was that happening in first century Ephesus in the letter of 1 Timothy? Well, if you turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 9. Paul says some things about widows. He says, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60 and has been faithful. What list is he talking about? Well, the church was committed to taking care of widows who were in need. In that, in that culture, a lot of the widows who would lose their husband had no way of making a living. They were not able to get an education. Many of them did not get any trade skills. There were exceptions, but many of them were destitute. And when they became believers, the church was committed to coming alongside and providing food and, and, uh, and care and help them to have their needs met. Well, what Paul is saying is that the young widows don't need to be on this list. Look what he says if you jump down to chapter 5, verse 11. He says, as for the younger widows, do not put them on such a list when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ. They want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into that, listen to this, they get into the habit of being idle and going from house to house and not only do they become idlers, but they're also busy bottles, bodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So these young widows were mooching off of the church for their provision, and yet they had all this idle time on their hands, and they were then propagating this false teaching that they, they had been manipulated by the false teachers. It was happening right here in Ephesus. Young women, especially the young widows, were right at the heart of the problem. And one more passage. Let's look back at 1 Timothy chapter 2, right before the key passage I read earlier about complementarianism where we get this view. Look what it says in 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He says, I also want the women, this is in the church service, the worship service, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, ordaining themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So it's very possible what was happening is the women were dressing immodestly and using the gold and the jewelry and all the hairstyles to do what? To attract men sexually in the church. And they were doing this not to get married because remember the false teaching says you don't need to get married. And so this is a real, real bad problem that needs to be addressed. And so then we come back to our passage. Let's revisit it for just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 2, again, verse 11 and 12, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Two key verbs there. The verb to teach and the verb to assume authority. Both of them, if you think about the context, were being used with a negative sense. I do not permit a woman to teach. To teach what? To teach this crazy, false doctrines. I do not permit them to teach that stuff in the church. And then this other verb, to assume authority, is very interesting. It's only used one time in the New Testament, and it's, of course, right here. But what makes this, so it's a rare verb in the New Testament, a rare word in the New Testament, but what makes this very unique is that it's also a very rare word in the Greco-Roman world. We've looked at literary cultures of the first century and we try to find words that were rare in scripture and see what they meant there and that helps us to understand what they meant in scripture. We only find up to 12 uses of this word in all of the writings. That is a very small case sample. And almost uh, over half of those, it's not just assuming authority, but it has this idea of domineering. And so what it appears to be is Paul is telling these, the church, don't let these women start being argumentative with their teachers and trying to dominate or domineer over the discussions. And that's what was happening in this church. Paul and Timothy and probably other men were trying to get them to listen and learn truth. And instead they were wanting to debate and argue and disrupt and domineer. And so Paul tells Timothy, young Timothy, you got to keep them quiet. You got to get them into a posture of learning. I do not permit them to be teaching. And in the early church, the first century church, everybody could have a role. Women could prophesy. That was a modern form of preaching, men and women both. And so he was telling them, tell them to be quiet. They can't do that here at this time in this church because of this problem. And then when it talks about Adam was formed first and going back to the Garden of Eden, what he might just simply be saying to these arrogant women is that you need to remember that your foremother Eve in the Garden of Eden was 
deceived by Satan. She was duped. And you too are being duped by Satan. You're being deceived. And then he goes on to say, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This is also something he said in 1 Timothy chapter 5 at the end of his discussion about the young widows. He's basically telling them that one solution for you, a widow who does not have a way to make a living in your culture, you're young enough to still have children, you're young enough to get married, so get married. Have children, have a husband that's going to take care of your material needs, presumably a godly husband, raise those children up in the Lord and in the holiness of the church. That is an honorable thing to do. That is not the only role, of course, that women could play or should play because what? We see in the rest of the New Testament all of these other roles, but it is an honorable role. And I think that was part of Paul's solution to these particular young widows that were right at the heart of the problem here in Ephesus. Now this explains how we can put these two teachings together. Romans 16 and all of the New Testament Examples of women in ministry leadership and then this particular passage where there were restrictions and limitations for a particular church at a particular time because of a particular problem caused by a particular group of people. So that was then. This is now. That was then. What about us? If we move from first century Ephesus to 21st century Calvary Baptist Church, Little Rock, What do we need to do? Well, first of all, we too have to guard our teaching. We cannot tolerate false teacher teaching or false teachers, whether it's done by men or women or senior adults or young adults. We're talking about key primary doctrinal issues, not secondary issues. We can agree to disagree on a lot of things, but these are key things like salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus. We can't compromise on that. Authority of Scripture, person of Christ, the Trinity, things like this that were at stake here, we can't compromise either. And if it's happening, we'll have to confront those who are doing it and basically get them to be quiet and be taught. If they won't do that, we'll have to remove them from the church, at least for a season until they learn the error of their way. We have the same responsibility that Timothy and the church of Ephesus leaders had. But in terms of women in ministry, I think it doesn't say anything in terms of restricting women in ministry leadership today. I think we at Calvary who have a long history of encouraging women to be ministry leaders in all kinds of ways, I think we can and should continue that because the Bible does not restrict us from that teaching. Many of you know, I actually have a, a young granddaughter growing up here at Calvary now. And this is particularly important because our younger women, her age and older, need to know this is who we are. She's growing up here, and by all early indications, 
She is going to be a live wire in God's choir. (laughs) And I want her to grow up and live passionately, to learn to fall in love and know Jesus and live passionately for Jesus and to want to serve him passionately and to want to use her God-given talents and gifts given by the Holy Spirit to passionately serve God for the rest of her life. I want that for her and for all of our young people, all of our young children, men and women, ladies, guys, girls, everybody serving God passionately here. I want her to know that she can be a servant leader at Calvary, a deaconess if we call her to that someday, or some other church, that she can be an evangelist sharing the gospel passionately with her friends. She can be teaching the word of God. She can be a discipler, a disciple maker. She can be a leader. No restrictions, no limitations. Men and women serving together for the glory of our King and his kingdom. Why should we not do that? Let's keep doing that. And if you're not sure, some of you might be saying, well, pastor, I'm listening. This just wasn't what I was taught. I'm not quite sure yet. You haven't quite sold me on this. Well, here's my suggestion. Let's just do this. Let's just ask Jesus what his view was, what his view of of the role of women in ministry was. And we're going to ask him that question in next week's sermon. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.